Good morning. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 46 and stand for the reading of God's Word. All right, Psalm 46. For the choir director of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar. The kingdoms shake. He gives his voice. The earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of Yahweh, who has appointed desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts up the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You may or may not be aware, but this psalm is the inspiration for Martin Luther's beloved hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which we sang a a few minutes ago. So by way of introduction, I'd like to begin this morning with a short explanation of the circumstances that motivated Luther to write that great Reformation hymn. Martin Luther is one of the more prominent figures of church history. He lived during the time of the Protestant Reformation and, in fact, was a key player in the Reformation. He basically started the whole thing off by nailing the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. He not only faced great opposition for his leadership in the Reformation period, but he also dealt with personal health problems. In the spring to summer months of 1527, Luther experienced dizzy spells which forced him to stop preaching mid-sermon. He experienced buzzing in his ears which was so bad it forced him to lay down. He also experienced heart problems and had severe intestinal complications. Luther wrote the following words regarding these difficult circumstances. He said, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble, completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. These were indeed trying times for him, times in which it was clearly hard for him to hold steadfast to God's promises. In addition to all of this, the Black Plague had arrived at Wittenberg, Luther's hometown. People were so afraid for their lives that they fled their homes to try and escape the illness. 
Luther and his wife chose not to leave. They felt that they could not leave because Luther had a flock to serve and believed that it was their duty to care for the sick and dying. During this time of great uncertainty and difficulty, Luther's one-year-old son became very, very ill. And it was at this point that Luther sought refuge in the Lord and found strength for his soul in Psalm 46. Through its great reminders that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble, that the God of Jacob is our stronghold. And so it's of no surprise that these are some of the lyrics that we find in Luther's hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What encouragement Luther must have found in Psalm 46. And my hope is that this morning, as we look at this amazing passage from Scripture, in light of all that is going on around us outside these walls, that the Lord will use it to speak exactly what we need to hear into each of our hearts so that we can live in light of the great truths and promises of God for His glory. So now with this in mind, let's take a look at the first point in your outline, God's sovereignty over nature. Verses 1 to 3 read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride. Selah. We do not know exactly who the author of this psalm is, only that it was of the sons of Korah, who were great musicians that penned some of the Psalms. We also don't know the exact circumstances that surround this psalm, although it is very likely that it was written during or just after a time when the enemies of God's people tried uh, to besiege Jerusalem. This psalm was written for the choir director and is described in its introduction as a song, which tells us that it was to be used for congregational worship. And although we're not exactly sure, Alamoth may mean that this psalm was for soprano or female voices. There are three stanzas in this psalm, each ending with the word Selah, which as we have learned in previous sermons is a word of instruction to pause and meditate on the preceding words. In this first stanza, the psalmist presents three foundational facts and then explains the implications of these facts. The psalmist starts off by saying, God is our refuge and strength. And here we learn of God's protection and power for us. First, we learn of God's protection in sheltering us from all threats and opposition, for He is our refuge. And this is a recurring theme 
in our text this morning. Second, we learn of God's power for us to overcome all opposition and accomplish His will in our lives, for He is our strength. Notice that it does not say that God gives us refuge. Rather, God is our refuge. It doesn't say that God gives us strength, but God is our strength. These things are not conjured up within ourselves. On the contrary, they are all together outside of us and found in God alone. The psalmist then goes on and says that God is also a very present help in trouble. This fact bears more weight when we realize that we are weak, we are frail, we are vulnerable, we are feeble, and we are helpless in the face of all that is against us in this world. And so the notion of God being our refuge, our strength, our help, is not all that encouraging if God is far away, disconnected, aloof, and unconcerned about us or the things that we are going through. These verses make it clear that God is not far away, but instead He is present and He is our help in times of trouble. And He's not just present. The psalmist here emphasizes this by the word very. God is a very present help in trouble. He could not be closer to you in your troubles. He could not be more aware of your circumstances. He could not be more active in fighting the battles that you face in your life. Now the problem is that it doesn't always seem like God is near. It doesn't always seem that God knows what is going on. It doesn't always seem that God cares. And this was true for Martin Luther based on the quote that we read earlier, remember? He even said that he felt completely abandoned by Christ. He said, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. Guys, this is Martin Luther, okay? Right? A true hero of the faith. It's hard to imagine that this man, used so greatly by God for good, would reach such depths of despair. And and yet he did. Here's the point. Even though it may not feel like it, we know that God is near For the simple reason that Psalm 46 verse 1 tells us that he is. And here we are confronted with a great battle in the Christian life. The battle between the truths and promises of God pitted against what our feelings are saying about the circumstances of our lives. Life doesn't always feel like God is our refuge. It doesn't always feel like God is our strength. It doesn't always feel like God is very present to help us in our times of trouble. And this is the importance of faith. The faith that saved us and the faith that sustains us every moment of every day. Because true faith rests in the truths and promises of God when it doesn't feel like those promises are true. As we learned in Psalm 42 and 43, it is by faith that we preach the truths and promises of God's word against the lies that the enemy is whispering into our ear of our soul as we face the troubles that life brings us. And as we learned in Psalm 44, this doesn't always result in the circumstances of our lives turning out the way that we want. 
But faith rests in the knowledge that God is sovereign. And faith rests in the knowledge that God, even in our unresolved troubles, is working for our good and for His glory. We see this explained further in verses 2 and 3. In verse 1, the facts have been stated. And now in verses 2 and 3, we see the troubles of life presented before us metaphorically as the upheaval of the very foundations of creation. We see our trouble described as the earth changing or giving way. We see our trouble described as the mountains shaking into the heart of the sea. We see our trouble described as the water of the sea roaring and foaming. We see our trouble described as the mountains quaking at its lofty pride, or as other translations say, the mountains quaking at its swelling or surging. These metaphors do not represent small or petty problems and concerns. No, these are the most troubling, the most foundation-destroying, the most disheartening, the most frightening events that could ever transpire in our lives. These are the things that would make us wonder whether or not God is near, whether or not God is our help, whether or not God is our refuge, whether or not God is our strength. These problems could very easily make us wonder, when is God going to show up? Because it sure doesn't feel like He's got things under control. But what does the Bible say? And this is always the question that we should be asking ourselves. What does the Bible say? Well, here's what it says. We will not fear. We will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains shake into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its lofty pride, we will not fear fear. Why? Again, because Psalm 46 verse 1 is in the Bible. It is contained in the very words given to us by God. And Psalm 46 says that in the face of all of this calamity, God is our refuge. God is our strength. In spite of the way it feels, God is our very present help in trouble. This is why we will not fear when all that we have come to know is normal. When all that is good about our lives and our society is upended. When all that we have come to expect regarding our way of life has been turned upside down. One final thought before we take a look at the next point in our outline. The sovereignty of God is a very important factor in our not fearing these things. God's refuge for us, God's power for us, God's very present help for us over these circumstances that are too great for us, these things mean nothing if God is not sovereign over them, if God is not in control of all that is transpiring. And not just in control, but sovereignly ordaining that these things come to pass for our good and for His glory. It is not insignificant that the psalmist uses the upheaval of nature to describe our troubles and that God created and controls nature with mere words. 
Let's just briefly take a look at the first day of creation where we see the sovereign power and authority of God at work. Genesis 1, 3 to 5 says, Then God said, said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Notice God's power to speak light into existence out of nothing. But something we often miss in the display of his, is the display of his authority in verse 5, where God names the light day, and he names the darkness night. You do not get to name something unless you have authority over it. And so we see God's power and authority over nature in not only the creation of it, but also the naming of it. We also see it in Matthew 8 when Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea and they obey. Matthew 8, 26 and 27 say the following, And he said to them, Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea. And it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? The sovereignty of God over nature, and by analogy of this psalm, over all the troubles of our lives, is what makes his refuge, his strength, and his very present help the foundation of our peace in the face of our greatest troubles. Brothers and sisters, this should give us tremendous comfort in the face of the seemingly insurmountable difficulties of life. Now let's take a look at the second point in our outline. God's sovereignty over our enemies. Verses 4 to 7 read, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations roar, the kingdoms shake. He gives his voice, the earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. This portion of the psalm begins in verse 4 by speaking of this river whose streams make glad the city of God. Historically, an important thing for a city to sustain itself when being attacked and besieged was a reliable source of water. If the enemy is able to cut off the water to a city, it is a sure sign that the city will soon thereafter fall to the enemy. It is very likely that the earth-shaking events surrounding the writing of this psalm were an actual attack on the city of Jerusalem in which the Lord delivered Israel, his people, from defeat. Although we cannot say with certainty, most commentators think that the events surrounding this psalm are likely the destruction of the army of the Assyrian king Sennacherib during the reign of Hezekiah found in Isaiah 36 and 37. Take a look at the Lord's deliverance of Jerusalem from these Assyrians. Uh, Turn with me to Isaiah 36. 
Here we will see the men of here we will see Sennacherib's men blaspheming God as they taunt Israel. Here are just a few things that they say. Verse 14 in Isaiah 36, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Or verse 15, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh. Then these Assyrian men will try to entice Israel to make peace with them. And they say if they do that, all will be well for them. They'll eat of the vine and each of their own fig tree, and they'll drink of water from their own cisterns. That sounds amazing. Give up all of your property and possessions. Give up all of your freedom. Don't worry. We'll give you everything that you could ever want. And we, the mighty, benevolent Assyrians, will take such good care of you. Sound familiar? Here we see the boring predictableness of tyranny. The apple truly does not fall far, far from the tree, and Proverbs 12.10 is right when it says that the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And then these arrogant men of Sennacherib go back to their tired old taunting, saying again in verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria, as if Yahweh is like any other god of the nations. I can imagine when Hezekiah heard these words that he must have been afraid. But he did the right thing. He appealed for Isaiah the prophet to take this to the Lord. And listen now to what the Lord has to say in response to these men. Isaiah 37, verse 23. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you heightened your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel? Verse 26. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From day of old I formed it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should devastate fortified cities into ruinous heaps. And then verse 28, But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in, and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because of your presumptuousness, because your presumptuousness has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. The Lord spoke, and then the Lord acted. He acted as Israel's refuge. He acted as Israel's strength, as a very present help in their time of trouble. Look at verse 36, which reads, Then the angel of Yahweh went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And the men arose early in the morning, and behold, all of them were dead bodies. When the men of Sennacherib were taunting Israel and Hezekiah, I would imagine it didn't feel like God was their refuge, like God was their strength, like God was helping them. Rather, they must have been afraid. But the fact of the matter is, God was their refuge. God was their strength. God was their help 
even though it didn't feel like it. And we can learn something from this. When we are in those moments of doubt regarding God's help, take those doubts to God like Hezekiah did. And then rest in the Lord as he works on your behalf. Now turn back to Psalm 46. Notice this river that is mentioned in verse 4. It makes glad the city of God and is a metaphor for God who satisfied, who satisfies and makes glad his people. When he... <clears throat> When we turn to God in our, in our times of trouble and seek His face, we take our eyes off of our circumstances and place them on the Lord, and the fruit of this is gladness. Or another word is joy. Steve Lawson says the following about this river. He says, Unlike the turbulent waters that roar and foam, remember from verse 3, the streams of God are continual and make glad the inhabitants of the city of God. Let me ask you, when you are facing trouble, when you are dealing with heartache, when you are in uncertain circumstances, when you face seemingly insurmountable difficulty, what is your disposition? Are you glad? Are you joyful? Are you at peace or are you anxious and fearful? Let's consider what happened to David. There was a coup to overthrow David's reign as king of Israel. And what's worse, this coup was being led by his son, Absalom. And so David had to flee from Jerusalem and for, for his and his household's safety. But we see in Psalm 3 that David, like Hezekiah, took this to the Lord. And after he brings his troubles before the Lord, we see in Psalm 3, verse 5, where David says that he lay down and slept. You can only fall asleep in such circumstances if you are truly at peace. There are two ways we can pray to God in the face of trouble. We can either take our troubles to the Lord with a kind of faith that leaves those troubles in the Lord's care, or we can pray to God but keep a hold of our troubles. One way results in peace joy and gladness. The other results in fear and anxiety. Are you made glad by God in the face of your troubles before they are resolved? Or do you remain in fear even after bringing your troubles to him? I encourage you to think upon this and reflect on which is true for you. Back in Psalm 46, verses 5 to 7, we learn about the fate of Jerusalem in light of the threat before the city. It says in verse 5, she will not be shaken. Why? Because God is in the midst of her. Does this sound familiar? They will not be shaken because God is their very present help in time of trouble. Verses 5 and 6 serve to further emphasize this point. First, see that at the time of their great vulnerability when the morning dawns, at that time when the enemy will most likely attack, that is when God will help her. Second, the psalmist speaks of the roaring of the nations, their shaking. Have you guys seen these clips on social media recently of those who oppose the recent Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade? These people literally screaming uncontrollably. 
they still roar and shriek today. But take a look at what verse 6 says. It says, God speaks, and all that raging is drowned out, and the earth melts. All right, now let's consider verse 7. In fact, I encourage you to pay close attention to verse 7 because it is repeated again at the end of this psalm in verse 11, and it's the same sentiment, its same sentiment is mentioned in verse 1. This theme of God being with us is at the heart of this psalm. In verses 7 and 11, we learn a number of things about this God who is with us. First, He is Yahweh of hosts, or said another way, Lord of hosts. Hosts refers to not only the armies of Israel, God's people, but also the angelic armies of God. We're given an amazing picture of this when Elisha and his servant wake up one morning to see that the Syrian army has surrounded the city of Dothan where they live. And the servant was terrified. But Elijah, just like Hezekiah and David, went to the Lord. And he prayed for the eyes of his servant to be opened so that he could see the reality of the situation. And God opened his servant's eyes And 2 Kings 6.17 says, He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You can read the rest on your own to find out what happened, but needless to say, Elisha and his servant were victorious because the Lord of hosts and all in his charge were with them. Interestingly, this is the meaning of the word Sabaoth. It means Lord of hosts. This word is also found in Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when it says, We were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Secondly, verses 7 and 11 reveal the God of Jacob is our stronghold. This word stronghold can be translated refuge or even fortress and has the implication of a place of inaccessible height. And when the psalmist uses the phrase God of Jacob, he is indicating that God is a mighty, inaccessible fortress for the people of God. This verse, along with verse 11, are at the heart of the message of this psalm. And we're also at the heart of the inspiration of Luther's hymn, which begins with these words, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. And here's the point. In the face of all the trouble that is stirring around us and all the enemies that are against the things of God, in the face of this, the Lord of hosts is with you. He is your refuge. He is your stronghold. He is your fortress. Brothers and sisters, remember this. Rest in this knowledge. Be at peace. Be glad. Be a person full of joy and face this world with the boldness for Christ that has never been seen before. Have compassion on the lost. Fearlessly preach the gospel before those that hate you. Because there was a time when you would have been among them. 
But God, in His great mercy and grace, God, in His love for you, has rescued you. He has saved you and brought you into His heavenly family. If the sovereign Lord of hosts is with us, and thus all His armies, if God is our mighty fortress, then we have nothing to fear. Even death is sweet to the soul of the child of God because it is the means by which we come into His glorious presence. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. May we be the kind of people that have been so changed by the love of God for us that we can't help but go and share the good news with this dying world. Brothers and sisters, nothing has changed. Nothing. The gates of hell still will not prevail against the onslaught of the church. Our calling is the same. Let us be faithful in it. And now we come to the third and final point in our outline, God's sovereignty over the nations. Verses 8 to 11 read, Come, behold, the works of Yahweh, who has appointed desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts up the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Here in the last stanza of the psalm, in the midst of enemies attacking God's people, we see the psalmist encourage the reader to consider the future and final victory of God over all the nations. And so, in the first half of verse 8, the the psalmist beckons us, come, behold the works of Yahweh. In the second half of verse 8, these works are summarized in the statement that Yahweh has appointed desolations in the earth. This is a statement that refers to future judgments in which Yahweh will lay waste to the wicked. And this sets the tone for verse 9 where we see three statements describing these mighty works of God in more detail. First, Yahweh is the one who makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. While this results in a complete and final peace among the nations, it is not accomplished peacefully. God is not acting here as a peace negotiator or working to establish treaties between nations. It is not a peace in which the wicked nations come to agreeable terms with the sovereign and holy creator of the universe. There are no terms. On the contrary, this peace is not one of mutual compromise, but total submission on the part of the nations. It is an imposed and final peace in which God is the conqueror of the nations, subduing them and their wickedness. We see this further emphasized in the second statement regarding God's judgment of the nations. Yahweh is the one who breaks the bow and cuts up the spear. The bow and spear are tools used by warriors to fight battles. 
In this imagery, we don't see them laying down their arms. This is not describing actions taken by these warriors to stop fighting. On the contrary, the imagery here is one of God's violence against these warriors, breaking the bow, cutting up the spear. This is a picture of God destroying these warriors' tools and ultimately represents the breaking of the power of the warrior himself. Third, Yahweh is the one who burns the chariots with fire. Like the previous statement, we see here another image of warfare, the mighty chariot. This is representative of the power of the weaponry being destroyed. An army at that time with an abundance of chariots was considered a mighty force not easily contended with. And yet here we see Yahweh burning these so-called mighty chariots with ease. Speaking of verse 9 in our text this morning, one commentator says the following. The verse then affirms in detail that when God brings wars to an end, everything associated with war will be destroyed. There will be no more need for war because there will be no more enemies. The judgment will be total and those who might attack the people in the holy city must foresee this. And so now we come to a familiar verse. Verse 10 says, Cease striving, or you've likely heard it as, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Notice here that the psalmist is no longer the one who is speaking, but Yahweh himself is speaking. And while I don't think it is inappropriate for us believers to be encouraged by this verse to stop striving and let God work in our lives for his own glory, this is not the primary meaning of this verse when you consider its context. Remember the context is what we've just spoken of, the total and complete desolating judgment of the wicked nations by the sovereign Lord of all. With this in mind, we see that in verse 10, Yahweh is directly addressing those wicked nations. It is a warning to them, an exhortation to be still and stop striving, to submit, to cease fighting, to stop resisting the Lord and instead submit to Yahweh as their God. It is a warning much like that of a policeman who says, stop resisting arrest. It is a call to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Why? Because it is inevitable that Yahweh will be exalted among them. That Yahweh will be exalted in the earth. They're going to do it anyway. And this verse serves as a call for the nations to cease now so that they are not forced by the hand of the Lord to cease later. And then the Lord returns the mic, so to speak, back to the psalmist. And the psalmist repeats verse 7 here in verse 11 and says, Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Here the theme of this psalm is re-emphasized. The Lord of the armies of Israel, the Lord of the angelic armies of heaven, that God is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, our refuge, our high and inaccessible fortress. Therefore, we will not fear. Brothers and sisters, 
we should meditate on these things. I'd like to take a moment and consider how the word Selah is used in this psalm. This psalm contains three occurrences of this word. Selah comes from the Hebrew root word kalah, which means literally to hang and is commonly understood in the context of measuring or weighing items in the market. And so Selah is a word of instruction found mainly in the Psalms that tells the reader to pause in order to carefully examine, measure, and value what is being said. In our psalm this morning, each Selah follows after each stanza, and so the Holy Spirit is instructing us, the readers and listeners, to pause, examine, measure, and value what is being said. First, we should pause and consider the sovereignty of God over all creation, and in spite of what seems out of control, we know that God is in total control. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our very present help. Therefore, we will not fear. Second, we should pause and consider the sovereignty of God over our enemies and His sovereignty over their advancement against the gospel and the kingdom of God. Therefore, we will not be shaken. Third and finally, we should pause and consider the sovereignty of God over all the nations of the earth and their wicked rebellion against their Creator. Therefore, we, the righteous, should behold the works of Yahweh and not lose heart, but instead find hope in the final and complete victory that our God has over these great ruling powers. Our God is the all-powerful, the supreme ruler of all nations, and He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. And just as the nations will one day submit to the authority of Yahweh as their creator God, so too every human heart will one day bow the knee before Jesus Christ and honor Him as Lord over all. Philippians 2, 8-11 says the following about Jesus Christ, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see here what Jesus Christ has done. He who is God, the one who spoke, and with the word of His power brought all things into existence from nothing. The one with all authority who named the light day and the darkness night. The one who was in the beginning and has always existed. The Alpha and Omega. The second person of the triune Godhead. 
became a man. And as Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself through obedience to the will of the Father that he would die. And not just die, but die an excruciating death on the cross. Why? Why would our great God as a man need to do such a thing? He died because we sinned. And because our very nature is corrupted with this sin which originated in Adam. And all we are capable of is further proving that God's condemnation of us is just. For no amount of good works can erase the evil that we have committed before this holy and righteous God. But friends, there is good news. Ephesians 2 says the following, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the key word here is with. It is those who are with Christ that are made alive. It is those who are with Christ that have been saved from the wrath and justice of God for sin. I challenge you this morning to examine whether or not you are with Christ, for it is those who, by faith, have repented of their sin and turned from that sin towards Christ as their Lord and Savior that are with Christ, that are saved. Is He your Lord? Is he your Savior? If he is, then you have already bowed the knee to him. If he is not, like the nations, you will one day bow the knee to Jesus Christ as your Lord, but then it will be too late for him to be your Savior. I therefore encourage you, as the psalmist did, to pause, examine, measure, and value these things. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing passage of Scripture. The great reminder that you are with us and we have nothing to fear. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes as you did the servant of Elisha to see these things, to see the reality of the circumstances around us, to see that you are our stronghold, that you are our fortress, that you are with us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.